0: Hello and welcome to this edition of V Radio. If this is your first time tuning into V Radio, you can check out my archives either on my YouTube channel or on my podcast, which is generally available through Apple Podcasts, several other mediums. I will actually link ways that you can find them both on my the description for the show. Today, my guest is a man named Paul Rossi. Paul Rossi is a teacher who is essentially, I guess, kind of a whistleblower when it comes to the issues of critical race theory and anti-racism being taught in public schools. Um, I know that he's had some exposure with some of the major, like he had an interview with Jordan Peterson and an interview with Benjamin Boyce. And now I've got the privilege of being able to bring him here to V-Radio. Welcome, Paul, to the show. Thanks for having me, Neil. So my first question generally is what made you decide to become an activist? Like what was the precipice moment? And I think for you, it would kind of be from when you decided like, you know, I'm a teacher, but now I think I'm going to have to be an activist teacher.
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's, It was a very slow, gradual process. Um, our school, uh, which is a private school, um, started to make a commitment to what, what is called anti-racism in 2015. And it was a top down decision by the board, uh, and it was very made very clear to the faculty and staff uh, at the beginning of the year in um, in two thousand and sixteen that um, this you know this was non-negotiable, and we would all have to get on board um, with a whole host of um, you know essentially premises about the way society is rigged and um and our responsibility as as uh, you know activist teachers to promote this um, and I, I, I had concerns at the time before I even actually started to see any of the implementation that um, just framing the problem in terms of anti-racism when racism has undergone a tremendous amount of concept creep even at that point uh, meant that you know we were potentially going to risk going you know as a school community creating an, an atmosphere where there could be kind of a witch hunt situation um, right. since people define racism differently, right? So what does it mean to be anti-racist? Some people, um, even at that time, the American flag was racist. So are we going to, is that going to constitute uh, to be anti-racist? Should we be anti the American flag? Uh, and, you know, I, I raised these concerns with the administration and they told me, they kind of poo-pooed me and they said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. It's a work in progress. We're going to be bringing in, you know, you'll have a chance, an opportunity to, to work with us uh, and you know, with, within a, f- a year or two, it became clear that uh, several of the members uh, in the school community and the administration level, as well as many of my, my colleagues uh, were, you know, going, th- the process was underway to gradually ratchet up um, the, inv- you know, the rolling this out to the curriculum, having uh, teacher trainings, having professional development around, you know, this, this mindset. And, uh, and so when I, you know, I realized, uh, at a certain point, I think it was maybe 2017, 18, that, um, this was going somewhere that I was definitely not happy with. And I was going, and, and I could feel a real separation mentally between my own, um, my own, uh, reservations and my ability to express those in the community. And so I became kind of, you know, not an activist, but definitely somebody that was starting to document and work in small ways against what was going on.
0: Um, now a real quick clarification, because yeah. I just listened to some of your talk with Jordan Peterson, you, you guys are talking about this going on like back in 2015, right? I mean, like, I guess it started a lot earlier than I had originally expected.
1: That's right. We, I mean, uh, we are, uh, We are a new, uh, relatively new high school uh, in New York City. And, you know, New York City, and particularly Manhattan, is a very sort of elite kind of liberal bubble to begin with. And so I think we had, we were sort of a precursor to a lot of things that rolled out to other private schools and public schools. I mean, as early as 2012, we were working with an organization called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, which is, you know, the person who started that is, you know, direct um, directly connected with Saul Alinsky. So, um, you know, we, we were, we were, I guess, on the forefront of this wave, um, as it started to roll out. So.
0: Right. And that's, I think that's part of the most insidious issue is that I think some people don't really realize how long this has been going on, even just in this manifestation of it. Um, I, we, you know, I pointed out to some of my listeners earlier that you can watch a, uh, Doc, I wouldn't call it a documentary. It's more of a presentation that a KGB Soviet defector had put out um, back in the 80s. You can find it on mm-hmm. YouTube. I'll probably provide a link to it here. But he was talking about ideological subversion. And one of the major steps of it was this idea of kind of infiltrating the education system, you know, and getting people strategically placed. Mm -hmm. And that part about it, I don't think, I mean, everybody just kind of assumes, well, you know, nothing really crazy is going to go through, right? I mean, you know, everything's still rational. And um, Christina Hoff Summers, uh, she also described this when it came to feminist ideas, but basically it it started in the colleges where uh, the people who were the, you know, the activists in the 60s all kind of get together and say, well, we're going to become professors. And then after they get tenure, they start writing textbooks. And then you start, realizing oh so now this crap is being taught not as an opinion this stuff Mm -hmm. is just being taught as a fact you know and would that I mean was that kind of an experience you you, have you seen any of that taking place in the colleges or
1: oh yeah it was happening you know
0: in the 80s late 80s and early 90s when I was an undergrad
1: and um, at that time you know there was already you know there was a sort of a wave of political correctness they called it and there was a book actually called as tenured radicals uh, about exactly the phenomenon of the sort of children of the revolutions of the sixties coming, you know, coming into positions of power in academy in the academy. And you're correct. uh, You know, what, what's happened in the, in the decades after that uh, is that, you know, those, from those positions, now we have the children of the children of the revolution who, you know, the, the phenomenon is now metastasized and we have, People in positions of power in, you know, all the major institutions, you know, particularly education, which is why we're seeing um, education as sort of the main battlefield right now for a lot of these issues, K through 12.
0: Well, and I think But it's also in HR,
1: it's in the media, it's in, you know, the government, it's everywhere.
0: Right. Well, yeah, and the media has changed dramatically, too. I mean, there was a time when the media was competing to get the most accurate information out there. And now both sides, the right and the left sides of the media have just become like political theater, theater, you know, catering to certain audiences. Um, that's actually part of the reason why I dusted off my headset and started doing this again because it was driving me crazy. I couldn't you can't watch the news anywhere, you know, because both sides of it are just so crazy, um, you know, and it's even infiltrated some of the YouTube stuff like the, the Young Turks has basically become a Fox News for progressives. You know, they they clearly got somebody writing notes to them about what they're supposed to put out. But I don't want to get too far off the topic. the The main point is, is just that this has been going on longer than people think. You know, and I think that we have become complacent in the idea that perhaps we thought this could never happen here. And I would say that the people who are orchestrating this—that's exactly what they were counting on. I mean, in my local town, um, it's a very conservative place. And I think the only reason it's gotten as far as it had so far was just that nobody knew about it. I don't think people don't really necessarily pay attention to their school board elections. You know, they don't pay attention necessarily to who their superintendent is unless there's a real reason for them to talk to them. So these meetings are all going on and most of them are still public, like as in forced to be public. And, but people just don't show up like unless they, mm. you know, like they're PTA types, they're they're not even going to go. So Um, That's actually one of the things that led me to talk to you is that slide um, that I showed you that was basically kind of explaining how apparently white children and only white children, because they clarify that supposedly kids of color do not do this, you know, prefer other white children, like going all the way back to being babies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I showed that to you and you said you were familiar with it and you've seen it used before. Um, What are your views on that slide?
1: Well, it's a, it's a great example of the general approach that a lot of this, I guess, it's just propaganda, the way it works, is that it creates a sort of, um, there's, first of all, it's kind of a lot of ideal, ideal laundered scholarship, and I haven't looked at these particular studies, and I, I would be very interested in following up and looking at them. Um, but, uh, you know, the main idea is that raises a social construction, but that since we are all tabla rasa because of, you know, the way that we're born, um, you know, thrown into society that we are so deeply affected by our environment since that care, you know, that is the force, which makes us who we are, that we are all racialized since birth to, you know, from birth to the age of six, which is what this slide is showing. And, um, you know, but, but uh, there's so many places that, the other possible explanations for some of the experimental results are elided. For example, you know, some of the recognition may just be not due to race, but, you know, some of the experimental results may be due to just differences. Um, if, 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 if a person is, you know, uh, raised in a family or in a community where people look a certain way, if you could make it not racial, but different in other ways, and they might give the same experimental results. So there are sort of possible conflations of things depending on the, ex- on the way the experiment is conducted, the sample size, you know, are these things qualitative quantitative um, and, you know, it's all agenda driven. So, you know, we, there is, there has been a lot of work done on ideal laundering and in the social sciences and the replicability crisis and all of these other things. And so these are, these essentially become, um, you know, activist scholarship at this, you know, and so, the right. point is to justify, is to create a a set of uh, premises that justify the intervention, the anti racist intervention. So a slide like this, which is showing that oh our kids are racist anyway, uh, is is all set up to to you know heighten the necessity for them to come in and preach, um, you know, to preach to your kids how to fix it.
0: Um, Right. Well, you know, and the thing is, is like, you know, just my own studies of social sciences, if somebody had said to me perhaps that all babies to some extent, like, prefer other babies that look like themselves, that would almost kind of make sense. Like, I could go, okay, well, maybe there's a reason for that. You know, I imagine like if we set a kitten down, and it could either go to a cat or a dog, it would probably go to the cat. You know, but but it's when it says, but only, but like it put in like parentheses, but only you know, white children have this effect, and I'm like, that's when I went, no, I'm sorry, you know. And, right. and to break down what you're talking about a little bit easier for some of my audience, as far as that, um, you know, particularly, I've talked about this in some of my other episodes, but the grievance studies affair, when the three activists who are also professors, if I remember, they're all professors, but um, you know, basically put together fake studies. And submitted them to scientific journals to see if they could get them approved. And some of the things that they put in there was like taking a chapter of Mein Kampf and just rewriting it, you know, to mm-hmm. say men rather than Jews, you know, and that got approved and it got published. And it's like the, the basically the, the status of academia right now in the social sciences, you know, um, even before we talk about the reproducibility crisis, which I'll t- try to explain in layman's terms next. You know, was that they'll take anything that sounds woke at this point. And that way they have this like, you know, ammunition of, well, study X, Y, and Z says the following, mm. you know, and some of the stuff that they got approved was just preposterous. Like, you know, dog humping in dog parks is evidence of rape culture. And perhaps if we can train dogs, not to hump female dogs, then that means we can train men. You know, that's another thing. They mm. just made it up. They, they didn't do. There was never a study Nobody was ever sitting in any dog parks observing dog humping, but they still you know, were able to get that published. And then and whenever they were being edited, meaning I don't want to say edited, but when they were enduring, you know, going through the peer review. The peers are saying things that they want them to go even further, like to be even more ridiculous, to be even more woke about it. And, you know, the reproducibility crisis is going on in all the social sciences, um, you know, but it's a situation where in the scientific method, you're supposed to be able to repeat, uh, you know, an, a study and do it again. And there mm-hmm. are some psychology studies that I use in my show. Like um, I think it's called the Wilgram experiment. Like there are some that could be reproduced, mm-hmm. um, but they, a lot of these just can't, you know, and that's just like the study they did was to see how many could be reproduced. And they were like, It was like 40, 50 percent or something. And that was just the ones they checked out, which what that's supposed to mean is if you can't reproduce it, according to the scientific method, it's supposed to just be an anomaly and thrown in the trash. And instead, what happens is it just stays in the textbooks, you know, and that's that's a nightmare, especially Mm -hmm. because um, real world decisions are made based on what psychology professors and sociology professors tell people, you know, they influence lawmakers, they influence you know, every facet of our life. And then they have the ability to tell you that you're just crazy. You know, um, I'm going to segue just a brief moment. I did Mm -hmm. two episodes about um, like the professor who went to Yale and gave the speech wherein she revealed that she had fantasies of shooting a white man with or white people with a revolver if they got in her way. And Mm -hmm. then the other one that I read where they literally just put a social paper out there, and it's currently in journals now, suggesting that whiteness is a parasitic condition like mental disease that they feel that psychology can treat and they said that white people are far more susceptible to it you know but other people can get it too and i realized oh okay so this is how we're going to explain when a person of color doesn't agree with critical race theory we'll just say they're afflicted with whiteness Mm -hmm. you know so anyway you know if you could go ahead and give me some commentary on your experiences with those things
1: yeah, uh, well, you know, whiteness. Whiteness is a fascinating uh, abstraction of what they're, you know, targeting and vilifying because it becomes a universal explainer, just like you mentioned. If you, if you have any person of any color that deviates from the the narrative or the ideology, it can simply be waved away by internalized whiteness, and they do this all the time. Um, and the DEI consultancies that come in explicitly have been doing that um, to explain why they're getting pushback from people of color or why say um, Trump in 2020 gained voters among people of color, for example. So this is a, it is, it reminds me of, um, you know, before the Copernican revolution and, and when people, when, uh, when we discovered that the planet circled the sun, there was this belief that the planet circled the earth uh, and and it was explained away you know the differences in the orbits and so on were explained away by you know things called epicycles which were you know strange variation in planetary movement to preserve the theory uh, there's this thing whiteness which is it just it becomes it functions the same way that epicycles function to preserve uh, the earth-centered universe paradigm so it it really is a universal rationalization that's that's not only just a rationalization, but one that is specifically targets a racial group. So I think when, when people uh, are really up in arms, it's right. They should be. And I was too about critical race theory. What, what the most debilitating for both for all races is this idea of, of critical whiteness studies, which is an offshoot of critical race theory. And
0: right. And yeah, I it, noticed yeah. they have a branch for every race now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and uh you know when, the the way this started to really infiltrate my experience as a as a math teacher uh, in my school um, since many of the teachers at our school have multiple duties yeah you know, i i had a small advisory group where i you know i had to align with a lot of this mission and and you know push these ideas onto um, small groups of students that weren't directly related to math is that um you know they they wanted me to start doing that, and they started to, um, you know the 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 real moment when I realized um, that I really couldn't participate in this was when they wanted me to teach this pyramid of racism, uh, which I've talked about you know elsewhere. But it's it's a it's a pretty fascinating document in that it it's a pyramid that with genocide at the top and it organizes. A whole host of relatively benign um, and in some cases virtuous behaviors underneath this pyramid, um, which means if you participate in any aspect of these other, um, these other behaviors or, or mindsets, then you're, you're promoting genocide.
0: So just for yeah. the sake of my listeners um who don't watch my video versions um mm-hmm. I want to read off some of these things um so like the it's called the pyramid of white supremacy and I will make this available to people but some of the things that are on here are like two sides to every story is indifferent white supremacy meaning the notion that there are two sides to every story uh not challenging racist jokes okay I can get that one but um, you know, prior, prioritizing intentions over impact. So, like, your intentions no longer matter, just the effect of them. You know, uh, there's all kinds of crazy stuff on here. Suggesting that not all white people do X or Y is apparently also part of white supremacy. You know, um, things like false equivocation, which I'm debating people on this topic. I noticed that they really abuse that. Debate tactic of like, this isn't really equivalent, you know. But, um, but anyway, you know, there, there's all kinds of stuff on here that is just like, especially the there's two sides to every story. Okay, that's not true. So now mm-hmm. what? There's just your version, right? You're like your version of the story, right. you know, and that actually, while this is fresh in my head, I want to kind of, you know, an analogy that maybe people might be able to wrap their heads around a little easier that I've been using is that this has become like, <clears throat> a religion that is conducting a crusade that holds inquisitions that, you know, use witch hunts to find blasphemers to be excommunicated. And I don't mean that to be hyperbolic at all. You know, at a period of my life I was studying religious persecution and what the inquisitions and the witch trials were like. And one of the things about this, it being an amorphous concept is that you can just rewrite what it means in real time to suit you as the inquisitor you know mm-hmm. that's how you end up with insane you know like witch trials like i'm going to tie your arms behind your back to your legs and i'm going to throw you in a body of water and if you float then we have to kill you because you're a witch but if you sink and drown well at least your soul is with god and you're not guilty you know mm-hmm. you end up in these scenarios where they could just redefine the rules and redefine what is racism. And in some of the, you can get a lot out of watching some of the protests because the students spit out stuff that, you know, they may not necessarily have wanted to, but things like, no, we will tell you what is racist and what is not, you know, Mm -hmm. we will tell you if you've heard us or if you haven't, you know, the um, people. And that that raises a
1: very important point. um, When you, you mentioned that last thing, it's something I wanted to talk about, which is the, in the schema that, they, that they've they created, there is no way for a person who is an, an oppressor, so, you know, so to speak, in some ways explicit, there is no way for that person to even identify their own blind spots. That is, the standard of, of evidence needs to be set by an, a person who is uh, purportedly the oppressed, so, so you have. Not only do you, as an oppressor, have blind spots. If you belong to that group, you don't even know where those blind spots are until you are, you know, you you are told by some an expert or someone who is well versed in the theory. One of the you know where to look. Clergy Ex- exactly. Been-
0: Authorized by the Inquisition for you to become a professional witch hunter, and yes, yeah, yeah. And if they go to a village and they don't find evidence of the devil, it only means they haven't looked hard enough. It doesn't mean the devil right. isn't there. So somebody's always guilty. It, it, it's a it's a mentality that can just take you over. And if you couple with the that with the virtue signaling, which is I'm going to get social credits with people by being really good at this you know, um, lynching that is, you know, that is the witch hunting, um, you know, then it it just creates a scenario where everybody feels uh, compelled to try to analyze everything from that lens. You know, and it's the other thing I would element is like, when you say it's a problem, you don't even know you have, it's an invisible problem, you know, just like, say, being under the influence of the devil. That's what you would have been told. Well, you don't realize this. But me, the appointed clergy, I can tell you that you're guilty. And the best way to know that you're guilty is that you told me you're innocent.
1: Yeah. And from a scientific perspective, anytime you have a, uh, a premise that something, a force exists, which is, has very low effect sizes, um, but is universal, right? So like, for example, from the physical sciences, there was a thing called ether. And that was, you know, everyone would spend all of this energy trying to detect the ether. So, you know, in a sense, whiteness or structural racism is like that. Ghosts, in reality which has a you know it has a very low effect size in in small localities but overall it has an immense it, it, it's said to have an immense effect um and and whenever you have that kind of condition for you know uh, an an understanding of reality you have the potential for it to be you know to create a kind of a witch hunt where You know, things are ascribed to this ghost in reality when, in fact, um, you know, the standard, you don't need a standard of evidence because the assumption is there based in the narrative. So you can say, oh, it's whiteness or structural racism because, you know, what else could it be?
0: Um, Right. And that's actually that reminds me of one of the ones that's on this pyramid that Jordan pointed out was like, um, you know, that there's on here not believing people of color um, or their experiences, but at the same time. You know, like, so in other words, it's bad not to believe them. You're supposed to believe all of them, you know, but then it has in quotes, but my black friend said. Exactly. So,
1: Directly yeah. contradictory. Right. And, you know, and, and I bra- I raised this to to be fair, to give a voice to the other side. You know, I went to the, the DEI office. We called it the Office of Community Engagement. And I asked specifically, you know, what can you tell me what, you know, reconcile these contradictions? And the response to me was, oh, well, it depends on the context. Right. Um, How Convenient. Yes. So, you know, and I and I also said, well, are there other things? Is This pyramid comprehensive or all of the things on this pyramid. The only things we need to worry about. They're like, no, there are there are other things that, that could be on this pyramid. This is an ever evolving document. Right. So even if you even if you were to take the step of you know, I'm not going to do any of these things, you could fall afoul of an unwritten rule. Um, in which case, you know, if uh, totally at the at the mercy of anyone um, who either was a member of the oppressed group or spoke for that group to make the claim that, OK, there's this new thing that you just did and we're going to add it to the pyramid. So you, you're not even protected if you follow the pyramid exactly, um, which is why the anxiety that that produces causes, I believe, students and faculty to to. You know, compels their speech within a very, very narrow range of what is acceptable to say. So that's why when we had these meetings, virtual and in person, you would just have this robotic repetition of the same phrases. And you see this in in when you know celebrities go on an apology tour, or anyone is trying to say the right thing on Facebook, they'll say, you know, I'm doing the work, or I'm becoming aware of my privilege, or there's just a a, a script involved there. Because if you deviate from the script, you're vulnerable to, um, you know, to canceling or or, or sanction.
0: And and just like the witch trials, if you don't like someone, because I've watched these people fight each other. If you don't like someone, then you can just twist it around and then try to get a cancel mob after them. You know, well, they didn't or they misgendered somebody or they didn't, you know, use the correct pronoun or they didn't say the right racial, you know, Term Or, you know, then even if it's from 20 years ago on their Twitter feed, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's another part of the mentality of these people that I don't think people recognize is where do you need to be in your mind that you have nothing better to do with your time than to sit through 10 plus years of somebody's Twitter feed to look Mm -hmm. for something to destroy them with? Like, I mean, where do you, what headspace are you in? Cause I've like tried to find tweets I did three months ago and it takes a long time, you know, but yeah. you, I mean, you gotta be meticulous now. Um, you know, as far as like, you know, so as this evolved, this is like actually what got me in touch with you as I read your article and I'll make sure I link that as well. But it was, I refuse to, I think was it was, I refuse to indoctrinate my students or what was the name? Uh, of it, it
1: titles, I refuse to stand by. Uh, while my students are indoctrinated.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just pulled it up here. Now, some of the stuff you describe going on here when you talk about how people are just kind of you know, like they have all this anxiety because you know, god, I could say something wrong at any moment, you know, and there's a scene that you you kind of tell here where a t- a student comes to talk to you and has to like look around to see who's listening you know, to make sure they're not going to get in trouble. I mean, could you, could you tell that story?
1: Yeah. I mean, by, by this point, um, I had run afoul. I had, I had sort of transgressed by, by challenging um, the infamous w- slide of, you know, white supremacy culture, which is also, I mean, many of your listeners may know about this, but I, I had publicly questioned this at a meeting with, um, a racially segregated meeting.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. They love segregation now.
1: Yeah. With, you know, whites only students and faculty, whereas there was a simultaneous meeting with BIPOC students and faculty, black and indigenous people of color. Uh, but in, in, in any case, by this point, I had been sanctioned by the school. I was still teaching, um, but I had been publicly um, called out by the administration in front of all of the students. Uh, and yeah, you know, I was a sort of a toxic individual and this student wanted to offer me support, um, because, um, and as I later found out, there were many students who actually supported, if not what I was saying, my right to question it. Uh, he wanted to come and, and give me his support. And so, but it was very furtive and he was very scared because if any of his woke teachers saw him or one woke teacher in particular saw him. Merely coming to my office, just just you know, coming to see me um about anything. And my my being adjacent to Mr. Rossi at that point would have put this child in a situation where he could have gotten a talking to or he could have been reprimanded or he would have been questioned for coming to see me. Um and but his, don't
0: forget, this environment is to fight oppression.
1: <laughs> yeah. Continue. <laughs> yeah. Um and you know he kept looking around the corner and looking in the hallway he was worried about there's a camera um you know we have cameras in the school to you know it's, it's it's a bit of a surveillance atmosphere in case there's an incident but he felt that this camera could be used against him um if if you know if the administration saw he was coming to see me and, and it got around the school community. Uh, and his his fears were not completely unfounded. I don't think that they were unfounded at all because, as he told me, you know, he'd been reprimanded for voicing certain opinions in his history class. And it was his history teacher that he was particularly concerned about. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the opinions that he voiced that he was concerned about were um, not, a, not particularly alt-right or anything. I think, as he told me, it was you know, capitalism is, is not evil. <laughs> okay. Um, right. This is the level of, of, you know, of comment that, that raises eyebrows among the faculty. Um, So, uh, you know, he offered me a support and I asked him why he was nervous and he told me why. And it just became so obvious, like clear to me that this had just gone, this had gone around the bend. I mean, we had gone off the deep end at this point. If you have a student that's, that can't even talk to a teacher because of this this fear. It's it's uh,
0: um, how to turn it's just your not school, healthy. How to turn your <laughs> just, school into a cult? One hundred and one. Yeah, like, and turn and, it into a cult, complete with shunning. You know, and
1: I, and I want I want your listeners to understand that this did not happen all at once. It's very gradual. So uh, you know, to just to sort of back up a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, you know, at the what. After they made this commitment to anti-racism, the the conversations that the the DEI administrators were having with the faculty were very relatively benign. Things like, Well, what is we're gonna be anti-racist, what does it mean to you? And so people would would say, Well, I think it means treating people of different races as individuals, and 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 they would say, Oh, that's interesting. Okay, why do you think that? So so they were soliciting and validating where you were. In the process of becoming a more enlightened individual so you know to them there is a there's a telos there's a there's an end point in mind where they want people to get to to subscribe to to all of these beliefs but you know they're perfectly willing to guide you in your journey um, to coming to this higher understanding Uh, and they were gradual about it and so they would you know and i thought oh this isn't too bad so it kind of lowers your defenses but then you know, gradually, as you know, uh, I guess stories in 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 the general culture and the country as a whole, um, from 2016 to 2020, you know, there there were several incidents that created a kind of feedback loop within the school, where it was a heightened sensitivity to to in- incidents, perceptions within the school of racism, and then that sort of became a kind of vortex that it gradually accelerated this right Yeah, you know, that is very common
0: i'm sorry go ahead
1: no yeah, it's all right uh, then they, then they would come out with the pyramid of racism and then they came out with the white supremacy slide and so it, it just whereas they wouldn't mention white supremacy in 2016 they felt that the environment was prepared enough where they could introduce that and you know this this i've just read and i should have read it a long time ago i read a book um uh, by the by the Polish-Lithuanian author Miloch Milosz, who is, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he wrote after the Soviets took over the Eastern Bloc countries in 1945, after the Second World War. You know, the Iron Curtain didn't descend all at once. It was actually somewhat gradual. There was there was a tolerance for, uh, you know, that lasted a few years, I guess, or maybe you know, or a period of time for. Writers to continue to write, um, you know, with a certain degree of freedom, or poets or thinkers to have an intellectual culture that was still relatively free. But the but the architects of the Iron Curtain, you know, they had a plan in mind and they they rolled it out gradually. So so and everyone has a breaking point, I think. But the but um, you might not know where that is until it's too late. So I just right. want you know people to. To keep an eye out, and, and the best the best defense against that is to document everything. To you know, I don't I don't know what the state laws are in particular states, but it is very helpful to you know track and 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 keep these powerpoints presentations to to make recordings where that's allowed. Um, just even for your own sanity, to sort of reflect on and listen to it later and think, is this is this okay? And ask yourself that, and and share it with other people, and just have a have a reality check with people you trust, because they will leverage their authority to get you to sign on to things um, that are just wrong.
0: Now, the things that you were talking about, like when they were taking over the Soviet bloc countries, are exactly the kind of things that Yuri. Um, the KGB. Mm, yeah. Director. Yuri Bezmenov, I think. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. That's, yeah I, I was, I'm always afraid I'm going to mispronounce it, but regardless. Yeah. That's exactly what he was describing. He's like, it doesn't happen immediately. It's, you know, it's, and he even like has a, a time scale. Like this, this stage usually takes between 10 to 15 years. This stage mm-hmm. takes like, you know, and he had it down because that's what his job was in the KGB. And he was doing it in India for them, you know? Um, so mm-hmm and he was doing it as a, uh, as a journalist, he wasn't even a teacher, but he talked about how the teachers are immediately involved in this process. And it's basically, you know, he gave an example of like, one of his time frames And he's like, why does it take this long? He's like, because this is the time period that it takes to indoctrinate an entire generation of children, you know, into your new ideology, mm-hmm. you know, and, but also one of the things I think, you know, again, to kind of like, bring it back to those of my audience who may not you know, be as well read, but it's to say it's very similar, for example, again, to cults. They don't tell you the crazy stuff right out of the gate. They, they tell mm-hmm. you that stuff after they've, I mean, I, it's honestly, especially when kind of the thing that popped into my head when you were describing it is it's like grooming, you know, like mm-hmm. you're grooming them. You know I mean? It's just as bad as somebody who's like trying to, you know, as you know, bad intentions towards somebody, they're going to groom them, you know, until they're more and more comfortable with it. And then the punchline comes That's a great.
1: That's a great way to put it. Um, Because
0: you're just you're trying to prepare them. I mean, I'll give one more story real quick. Was I had a coworker who she was very bright, college aged girl, and you know she knew that I had been involved in activism. So she started talking to me about. She's like, "Well, I went to a Black Lives Matter protest." I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, tell me how it goes." And then as the time goes on, I just noticed her starting to accept more and more. Very extreme ideas about race. And then I want to say it was about 11 months later, she was telling me that she was either not going to have children or would only have children with a black man. Like that is the level that she Mm -hmm. went from, you know, and to I guess to give the counter to that is like, if I had asked her, if I had told her that that's what she would say 12 months earlier, she'd have laughed like what? No, that's crazy. You know, but her idea was that she wants to depopulate the white population. And I'm not saying that that's going to happen to everybody who goes to Black Lives Matter meetings. But th- the point is, is that there is a gradual process to it. And they do slowly cook you until you're ready for, you know, for the, the big bam. And I think like, you know, that slide I showed you is an example of a mistake, you know. And one of the other things I'm stumbling across is that there, there are things that the teachers are literally told, this is the kind of part of the curriculum that you don't share with parents, Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. did you get any of that stuff while you were there where they just kind of suggested, yeah, this doesn't go online. You know, don't don't be public about those.
1: I, I, um, I didn't was never directly told that, but I know that other teachers were worried, very worried about how parents would interpret some of this information. Um, and I don't know whether they were in, specifically instructed not to share it. But I, I should say in general that among the my colleagues that were very left liberal or, you know, I don't even want to say left liberal because you can be left liberal and be perfectly okay. It's really just a particular, I don't know, CRT or woke point of view. As somebody
0: is that- on the left, I would clarify that what it is is that that woke group is trying to claim you must participate in this stuff to be on the left. Yeah. They want it to sound like that. And if you're not this, you're on the left, which is part of the mental trick of packaging our politics in the first place. Like I'm a pro gun rights pro-healthcare person, you know, I'm supposed to not even exist. And there's a societal pressure on you that if you feel this way, then you need to also feel this way, even about things that are not even related, you know, so I can assure you there definitely are leftists who do not agree with any of this garbage, but -hmm. they're usually quiet because not even because they're afraid in so much, sometimes as much as they just don't want to put up with what's going to happen when they're public about it. You know, Mm -hmm. um, that's sometimes just people just don't want to deal with drama. You know, but anyway continue with what Yeah, you're I, t- I totally get that and you know I, I'm, I can understand um, I'm just afraid this drama' is eventually going to come for you you can't yeah you can't stick your head in the sand <laughs> I, I think it I think it
1: will um, if it hasn't already but one thing I did notice about back to the teachers and hiding things from parents is just real contempt for parents as a moral force in children's lives like to them this was about usurping what it means to be a good person and and who is a better arbiter of morality for children is it the teacher or the parent now they sometimes they would talk at the administrative level about how you know we work we work together and so on but and the micro level for particular issues particularly if you're talking about a teacher who is you know woke and a, and a parent who's conservative there's just open contempt and, and and almost a savior mentality we need to you know we need to protect and rescue these children from their parents' influence.
0: Um, Right. That's actually – Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, because – and then we can talk a lot about the language of harm, which which is a huge part of this discourse. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I would say uh, when – for parents that are trying to work within institutions, um, don't – I mean, take with a grain of salt or an – entire salt Lake, everything that, you know, parents or administrators will tell you, or that teachers or administrators will tell you, and really only look to policy changes and to things in writing, because that is, that's the only thing that means anything. Um, because they can, gaslighting and putting people off and humoring parents is really just part of the game. So, you know be i can tell you from the inside i've seen it happen they did it to me as a teacher they did it to parents um and you know did some some parents who who were against this stuff were just told like okay you know you you know it's a private school of course and and they have the right to do this but you could go somewhere else you know this is not the place for you but you know we're happy to take your money but we're not going to you know we're not going to listen to you if you don't align with our mission or
0: values. Well, and they're making it so that it's getting harder and harder to get away. Like, one of the things that came up in um, when Bill Maher had, oh, geez, I'm going to forget her name just because I need it. But uh, a lady who used to work for Fox News. Megan Kelly. Yeah, Megan yeah. Kelly. She's yep. like, I'm in New York and I was, you know, she's like, I'm going to re- take my kids to a different school. And then, like, there's nowhere to go. They're in all the schools in New York now, you That's know. Right. And then like that thing that just happened with the teachers union, um, you know, maybe you can comment on that a little bit more, but I guess like one of the largest teachers unions just like said, yeah, we're going to teach CRT, you know, um, and mm-hmm. just left it at that, you know, did you have any, go ahead and share whatever you know about that.
1: Oh, I just, you know, I, I, I find the arguments that are by CRT apologists, for lack of a better phrase, um, to be very contradictory. You know, at one level, oh, they're not teaching in schools and if they are, it's okay. Um, and all we're teaching is to be conscious of racism in society, um, which is just, um, that's not the problem, okay? And to, to characterize it simply as that is just not not what what is what is the, the problem there. Um, but the NEA um, is... Uh, I guess they had a conference recently or I I really don't know the the ins and outs of the organization, but they did come out and um, publicly call for a whole host of things, not just CRT in general, but an entire host of, you know, I guess, woke uh, causes. And then it got some press and I think most recently it was pulled. I pulled it off their website. I haven't checked the website, but I saw on Twitter that they,
0: I've gotten to the point now where I just take screenshots of anything that looks crazy. Yeah. You don't, you know, that actually bringing it back to this conversation about the the hatred of parents. um, On Tim Pool's show, he just had a guest who was a teacher and she talked about this book called Not My Idea. Um, And fortunately enough, I didn't have to buy it because somebody is like reads it like a children's book. Like you're, you're watching somebody read a book on like a Sesame Street episode or something. You know, and you can go page through, page through, but part of it is literally undermining kids' relationships with their parents, you know, and calling out specifically things that their parents may not talk to them about. And this mm-hmm. apparently, this book is circulated at the elementary school level to like fourth and fifth graders, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And the way it's written, you could go younger, you could probably read this to kindergartners. It's not complicated. The point is, is that, you know, that's, as soon as, and apparently that book was like bought in mass and is distributed in schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's how they got their hands on it, you know, and that's the part, like you said, the contempt, I completely, you know, I completely believe that, you know, um, because like, if you remember the kind of scandal, when a teacher on Twitter pointed out that they didn't like this homeschooling thing, because now they're, the parents can overhear what I'm teaching in my classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I get it. Not all parents are great. I'm not, that's not my point. And in some cases, you know, I, I know, because I know abused children who have had to be rescued by teachers or, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, the, but now it's like, we need to rescue them from what? You know, that was one of the things actually that you, you pointed out that was, I thought about was that one of the conversations was reminiscent to something that happened on a Facebook group, you know, that was situated around my town because we initially, we were discussing this on a more public Facebook group for our school board and we started getting deleted, like we started getting censored. Mm-hmm. So we created our own group, you know, and in one of the arguments, this guy is like, Well, the parents are not teaching their kids not to be racist, so the school system's gonna have to do it. I'm like, Whoa, buddy, put the brakes on here. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll handle that. Thank you very much. You know, and the mm-hmm. other thing that was weird is that there I've never encountered any racism in this town. And before I moved here, I spoke to people of color who lived here specifically. Because when you're moving into the country, sometimes you can run into that. I didn't want my kids around it, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, all the people of color I've spoken to about this community said it's fine. You know, so the, the point is, is that I, you know, you, you, they say, well, there's been incidents at the school. I'm like, really, where, when, Wh- who did it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they don't, and they're like, well, I can't talk about it. I'm like, well, no, I want to talk about it. Not just because of the fact that, you know, I don't actually believe them necessarily, it's that if it is going on, I want it dealt with and I want it dealt with aggressively, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm not tolerant of racism. That, that's definitely not the issue at all. You know? And, and like my kids, that would, <laughs> my kids mm-hmm. like, you know, cause they're both in combat sports. Like if they saw somebody like mistreating a racist person or like, you know, mistreating a person in a racist fashion, I'm probably going to get a call You know, because something's going to happen. My kids will deal with it, you know? So yeah, I just, yeah. but they, you know, and that's what I kind of understood was the, the impression of a lot of people you know, I, I don't know what, you know, it just seems like this idea that they believe that they can just brainwash our kids and that's the function, you know, of school, you know, and then they wonder why parents don't like it, you know, and I'm like, no, this isn't just going to be racist parents who are going to dislike what you're doing here, you know, and one more element of this that bothers me that I pointed out, I was like, look, if you have actual racist kids, like the ones they were describing in these, you know, alleged incidents, who are calling kids the n-word, I don't think any amount of trying to explain white privilege to them is going to change their minds. Like mm-hmm. they, they're not going to want to listen to a word you're saying. If you're talking about actual racist kids, like there's a different way to approach that. It's much more gentle, it's much more humanizing of people of color. You, mm-hmm. but you can't confront racist kids who are actually racist. And you know, it's funny that I have to make that distinction. Was what does racist mean? Like you're talking about the word harm that keeps going undergoing all these changes. They're trying to reword racism, but it's also like, I mean, actual racist, not a kid who perhaps didn't like the Black Panther movie, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and is therefore racist, you know, or maybe they, I don't know, used a problematic word. I mean, full on, legit racist kids. And I, you know, I know they exist in the world. I've seen them, but, you know, and it seems to me like they don't want to engage you know, about those those incidents, they just kind of want to say that they happened and then not have to provide any evidence. And, you know, the thing is, is that I also know the principals of our schools would be they'd be on that, like flies on excrement. There's no way mm-hmm. we could never yeah. get away with that. And I am happy for that. I'm more like concerned that they're saying there's these incidents and I'm not hearing about them. But anyway, go ahead.
1: You're, you're making me laugh with the Black Panther thing, because um, I was I was in a group. Uh, with students and teachers and I, and they, everyone was excited about the movie. And I said, you know, I, I didn't see it. I, I don't think I'd like it. And, you know, immediately all the antenna went up and they were like, what, what do you mean? Well, why wouldn't you like it? You know, uh, I said, I, 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 just, I don't like superhero movies. I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm not a fan of, okay, of those types of movies, I find them boring, right? So if you if you take that impact over intent Thing and you place it on that situation, the impact of of Mister Rossi not liking Black Panther in front of a group that is going to feel it as a racialized opinion. Um, and my intent, I mean, is completely benign. I just don't like superhero movies. Uh, and you know what? What does that say about that impact over intent thing? And what and what claim do I have under the rubric of impact over intent? to use my not liking superhero movies as an excuse for vocalizing my dislike of Black Panther. Right. And so these things are, they're just toxic little uh, maxims that are going to perpetrate these misunderstandings and, and potential for, for, for weaponizing, you know, just differences of opinion.
0: And when you bring Uh, up impact over intent, I kind of just had a click in my mind that like in the Brett Weinstein incident where they went after him and evergreen college, he wrote an email that said that he, and this would be a good segue into harm, you know, but um, he wrote an email that just said, I don't agree with the idea of excluding all white people from the campus for one day, you know? Um, and they wrote, basically they, they wrote into that and not as in literally mm-hmm. wrote it, but like, he's a racist. You said racist things, you know, on your email, and you harmed children in this college, you know, like, you need to apologize to all the people you did harm to. Well, what is harm? Well, it's whatever I say it is. I felt harmed, so therefore, you're guilty. You know, never mind what you said or what you're, you know, what you meant to say. If I've decided that what you've said harms me, then I'm automatically empowered to label you guilty of that, and you are automatically required to do recompense. And if you refuse to do so, then it only means far worse things about you are true. You know, um, yeah. and that's the element of it. Again, it's like a witch hunt. You know, we'll tell you what what is heresy. We'll tell you what the devil is. You know, and if you question us, we are the appointed, you know, clergy. You, you know, then you're in trouble because you arguing with us is evidence of your guilt. You know, and mm-hmm. that's an element to this that. It, you know, because, I, then, you know, we're talking about the scariest element of it. And, and I think it was good that you kind of tried to bring us back a bit more in a chronological order, because people are going to listen to some of the stuff we're saying and just roll their eyes like that's never going to happen. You know, and they don't they don't understand how this works. I mean, that was new information for me. I didn't realize we've been dealing with this problem since 2015. Mm. Like, holy crap. You know, like so much has happened between now and then, you know, and that they were just kind of lying in wait and waiting for the right opportunity you know, mm-hmm. and that that I think is what they feel that they have. You know, and I that actually kind of brings me to another point when we're talking about Brett Weinstein, is that okay, so I guess it was actually Robin D'Angelo, the author of the book White Fragility, which I might add our school board was told they needed to have a discussion about, like it was actually put on the agenda. Um, she was apparently the author of the the poster that was put on the um, African American um, history museum through the, through the Smithsonian that identified the scientific method and critical and rational thinking as elements of white culture, as an mm-hmm. element of whiteness. You know, and at first I'm like, well, that's, you know, do they mean that in some metaphorical way? And then I'm watching the documentary about what happened to Brett Weinstein at Evergreen College And there's a moment where one of the students is arguing with him as he's trying to, you know, calmly talk to them. And he says, the student literally screams at him, you need to stop demanding that people use logic and reason and white forms of information. And then Mm -hmm. it just kind of exploded in my head like, oh, that's what this is about. You know, we don't want to make any sense. And if you demand that something's making sense, then you're racist. That, that's
1: right, different. right. Well, you know, it's funny. I looked I because I got in trouble for questioning the same thing that you're talking about um, as operative there in that context, which is the white supremacy culture, the 15 aspects of white supremacy culture, which, you know, objectivity, individualism um, and, and among them, the right to comfort, which is a funny one. Um, but I looked at it. The, there's absolutely no scholarship behind it whatsoever. It was concocted in 1999, a long time ago, by a woman named Tima Ukun, who is a, uh, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, she was a, an activist in the Bay Area, um, and she led several seminars in in, you know, anti-racism at the time. Um, And it was, you know, as she wrote, writes herself on her own website, it was something that she came up with one night after a particularly difficult and exhausting intervention or workshop. And, you know, only 10 years later did she, you know, do a PhD thesis about it. Uh, Yeah. And it was, it was the standard of evidence was autoethnography. That is just, if I experience it, therefore it's data and it's legitimate.
0: And what's funny about that is that they want, they want, All experiences, what do they call the life experience of people of color to be sacrosanct, you know, uh, know, unable to be in any way opposed. But if you as a white person share something with them, then it is anecdotal. You know, we're literally talking about the same thing, you know, but but it's different if a black person or a Hispanic person or whatever engages in it. Well, then it's life experiences and whatever they tell you their lived experiences are. You know, you need to listen to that without question. That's actually on that pyramid, you know, and I, and- would, I, would,
1: I would add to that. The standard is even higher. It's not merely that it, the person has to be a person of color for them to be listened to. They have to actually say the right things. So, for example, when you're oh, talking right. about you spoke to people in your community, you spoke to black people. What is really curious about the level of racism when you got a, an answer that that didn't fit the narrative? those people shouldn't be listened to either. So it's not just, are you a member of the right group? You have to be a member of the right group and saying the right things.
0: Right, and that's why they, they've always, it's weird because they they kind of get awkward for a moment if a person of color weighs in on this and not going along with the with the program. You know, because if there's no person of color present, the first card that they'll play, you know, as if like, you know, if we were playing Magic the Gathering or something, the first card <laughs> they'll play disqualifies the white person because they're white and then when the black person steps up and says the same thing then they have to play a different card oh okay but well not all people of color you well, know that's like, hey, that's hey, where the
1: internalized whiteness card comes in now they may right. not they may not explicitly say it because it might be too incendiary but that will be the thing that they use subsequently to frame the issue right um, right they'll say oh you know we had well like who was the politician? I think it may have been Ayanna Pressley or one of the members of the squad
0: Right.
1: explicitly said, you know, we don't need black people who, who give us, you know, who aren't using black voices. It was, it was that crude essentially, but it was, it was a <laughs> right. literal quote. No, I've I mean, heard I'm things trying to exactly get as, like close, as close to that as possible. Maybe I'm right. paraphrasing a little bit, but
0: or but speaking that with definitely. good English, I've heard people say if you're speaking with, like, you know, refined English, then you're talking white, you know. Yeah. I, but I've heard that even before all of this. That's – when I lived in the ghetto, if kids spoke well, that was something that would literally get you beat up. And it didn't yeah. matter what color you were. But they would tell the black kids, you're talking white, you know, as if, like, there's a racial, you know, adjustment to that. You know, and, um, you know, actually – it, so as we're talking about this, I was hoping maybe you could help me understand this because I've been trying to catch information on it and I read about it a little bit, you know, but since you're a math teacher, you might be uniquely qualified to explain this, but there's this concept that apparently one plus one doesn't necessarily have to be two. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Go ahead and give me that one. Cause I, I still um, couldn't wrap my head around it.
1: Well, I, I think that you usually hear it if you were going to, look on Twitter, Google two plus two equals four. So that's there. There was a huge brouhaha about this on Twitter with James Lindsay, who was one of the authors of the grievance studies affair you mentioned earlier, where he, he was saying that, no, actually two plus two equals four as kind of a provocation for everyone. Um, on the woke side of the, the equation, so to speak, to weigh in and say, no, actually sometimes two plus two can be five, sometimes two plus, depending on how you think of two and two. So, you know, there is a situation where, you know, it, depending on how you, f- you frame the concept of number and quantity, it is possible through semantic reframing to make this claim that two plus two equals five. Uh, for example, if you take two units, and you add it to two units. Well, then you have four units, but you also have the set of all four units, which counts as one extra thing. So that's just one example. So it, it's it's a kind of sophistry based around manipulating the meanings of the categories. Uh, and but the, the and and the the point of all this, the real agenda behind it is to is to de- is to demonstrate the to undermine and deconstruct the idea of objectivity itself, and to say that. We, we construct, you know, objectivity itself is a kind of social construction that's based on language, language games. Um, and that, you know, there's not an actual um, truth to this. Uh, and that, you know, it, it also, it, it dovetails with certain pedagogical practices uh, around the idea of, um, you know, um, sort of like learning by discovery. Where you can like, oh, you can make an investigation. We're gonna and that that's actually a good thing. Um, and you don't need to sacrifice one for the other. You can have objectivity and learning by discovery or project-based learning, right? Where you can think of number in unique ways. Um, but there is but but it is unquestionably true that two plus two equals four if everyone agrees on the meaning of two and the meaning of plus and the meaning of equals, right? Like (laughs) you you can't get around. I mean, you want to, you want to quibble about the definitions of these concepts. Well, then you can, sure. We can all play that game and it's a fun game to play,
0: but you know what that reminds me of. of, It reminds me of how different religious denominations come to pass. They're all supposedly reading from the same Bible. Yet now we have drastically different interpretations that lead Mm -hmm. to, well, I'm a Mormon, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Jew, or I'm you know like, mm-hmm. and they're supposedly all the same source material, and that's you know again, this is no offense to anybody who's religious listening, obviously, but the point is is that there are people who can twist religions, and I think even you know good Christians acknowledge that. You oh know, yeah, but, yeah, you know. But the point is is that in in when it comes to this, when I was like kind of just putting it all together in my head, I'm like, who the hell would want to tell their students to stop using logic and reason? Well, that would be people who are full of shit, you know. Like, you know, and yeah. who would want a de-emphasis on the scientific method? Well, why would they not like the scientific method? It would probably be because the first place they infiltrated is the social sciences, and they know that the, a lot of the crap that they're putting out is not reproducible, and they'd like us to stop worrying about that. They'd like us to stop being concerned that you can't reproduce it. And when you said there's no science, you know, that put in my head like that article that I read about whiteness being a parasitic condition he didn't cite a single study anywhere. He gave like right. three descriptions, no, two descriptions of his interactions with patients, one of which was racist. And one of the other, which was just a woman who was having problems with her husband. And I'm like, this is not inform, this is not science. This is not information. Like, you know, and it's funny is that because I was doing a whole series on, do you think for yourself? So I started to look for those replicatable studies and they were so arduous in the way that they collected data. Like we, we, interviewed this many people, this is what they told us. None of that is in any of these papers. You know, there's none of that. It's like they're just talking. You know, that guy, it's like he hid it behind what I call $50 word salad. You know, so word salad is a concept of on on its own, where I just kind of blab and sound like I answered you, but then you make it $50 words, meaning just really big words, you know, and then you just throw them in the salad. And then if a person doesn't have as high a vocabulary as you do, they tend to back off, and they think, "Oh, well, that guy's smart. Maybe he's right." You know, like there are people who make that their entire like world. Like this mm-hmm. is how they talk to people. Like that Ibram X. Kendi guy, um, it, 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 he's a good at it. Or uh, what is his name? Uh, I think his last name is Dyson, but he's a big like he yeah, a yeah, Michael and, Eric Dyson, right? Yeah. He is bad at it. Like, oh man, like, and I can understand him because I have a vocabulary. But I'm like, okay, so he just repeated. It's like he gets out of Thesaurus. He's like, I'm going to use four fancy words for the exact same concept. <laughs> uh-huh. I, you know, in, in sometimes in rapid fire succession, it's like he has a gun in his hand with like, he sets it on automatic and he's like, you know, and they know he'll, it, but the point is, is that it just, it blinds the audience. They, they start spending too much of their mental energy trying to remember the definitions of the words and not looking at the fact that he doesn't have any substance, you know? And yeah, no, he, he,
1: he's a, he's a really good, he, he is a very highly skilled grandstander. There's there's, right. there's very like I remember seeing him in a debate with Jordan Peterson. Yep. I was just that, thinking about that, that thing. And he's just very, very good. And at a certain point, you just have to kind of tip your cap to the rhetoric. Um, you know, yeah, it's BS. But
0: when that wasn't um, working with Jordan, though, he yeah, just started no. turning into a bully. You know, like he started repeating the things Jordan was saying in a taunting tone. I'm like, you sound like a sixth grader cyberbullying somebody. Like, (laughs) that's a guy I just wet my chops. Like, oh, my God, I would love to debate you, you know, because if you know what to do to expose them, you know, you can get through. But anyway, back to how this is relevant to this, it it seems like they're really reliant on that. Like, you know, I don't know if you watched the clip of X. Kendi defining racism, but he broke a rule. That I learned in like the first grade that you're not supposed to use the word that you're defining in your definition. In fact, he said the word racism, I think, like six times in his definition of racism. It's racism is racist, this racist. I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And that guy gets paid. He got paid $20,000 to give a school a 45 minute Zoom call presentation. Like that's. The other element to this is there's money being made. It's not all just about the insidious elements of like, you know, any, even a communist, you know, plot. It's also just that these people are making bank. Like somebody Mm -hmm. pointed out that Robin DiAngelo gets paid more than most of the black speakers on the circuit talking about racial issues, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why, you know, because that's the other thing is is that why do they have this motive to bring this to your school? It's because they want to teach it, you know, and they want to make, they want to get paid, you know, like the idea that a school paid $20,000 to listen to that guy on zoom for 45 minutes. Like, I just can't even, you know, even like, even for an in-person, it's not just about me disliking him. I cannot imagine a public school paying anybody $20,000 to even come and talk in person, you know, like, yeah, right.
1: Yeah. I mean, as I recall, it was a, there was a pretty small, it was a small community. I mean, not a large tax base that, that paid that much for him to come in. And, you know you think you're talking about taxpayers here you're like um not not well-heeled people um i mean i don't think it's, it's it seems you know almost kind of cruel we're going to we're going to sell you back we're going to sell division back to you and you're going to pay for it
0: right uh, yeah yeah so. exactly but that's you know but it kind of it, it pushes towards motive like why do they need this to be what it is and then why do they need it to be so confusing you know, that's something a lawyer told me once. He's like, the reason why all this stuff is so complicated is because we want to get paid to be the ones who know how to deal with it. You know, like, oh yeah, if, yeah, if yeah it's that's all. It's that simple, then you wouldn't need us. You know, um, and it, it's, it's again a scenario that I, I don't know if people, especially like in a poor community, do we think that any of the kids of color got anything out of that guy doing a Zoom call for forty-five minutes that they could not have got? You know, they had mm-hmm. to have been able to get something better with twenty thousand dollars. You know, <laughs>
1: yeah, I I think that in a, in a large to a large extent, I doesn't it really just is counterproductive for the kids that it's ostensibly supposed to serve, um, because I'm, I there was a you know it, what it is it's a the it's a kind of performative minstrelsy on the part of uh, of the white people who are aligned with it, and it very like to a large degree it completely is irrelevant to the kinds of needs that the students of color are actually, would actually benefit them and give them real social capital and opportunities um, in, in that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's alienating. It's alienating. I've, I've, I can tell you from these meetings that I've been students of color just saying like, what is, how does this benefit me? What is this? This is a waste of my time. And I don't, I, I it seems like it is. I mean, I, I don't know listening one after the other as white students and faculty are are announcing their privilege and their commitment to the work and so on. i mean what is how is that relevant to to them getting support in their studies and their and their homework or or you know maybe getting a leg up in, in i don't i don't see it
0: well uh-huh. and it's the thing is is that you know i went to school in, in those neighborhoods that are considered to be the predominantly black communities. And I think that the real problem is something that people don't want to face, you know, and I, you know, I'm the, the, I'm the one of the coaches for a team that comes from that neighborhood. And I drive my son like an hour out of our way to go be part of that team because he has a lot of friends there. And even the black coaches are like, this is crap. Like my, my kids mm-hmm. don't need this. You know, like they're, they're, he's like, my kids need mentors. My kids need people to mm-hmm. encourage them. And that's why he runs this wrestling team in this neighborhood. You know, but also, you know, it's, I, I think that it basically amounts to this. When, where I went to school, using big words would be an excuse to punch somebody. You know, yeah. turning in your homework. Yeah, sure, maybe. You know, uh, do you have any plans outside of it? And this is for everybody who lives there. This is not a black problem. This is a, mm-hmm. it's in these communities in general. The Hispanic kids have this problem. The white kids have this problem. You know, it, it's, it's a cultural issue. How do you fight that? Because mm-hmm. the, the problem is, is that you've got to make doing well in school cool again in an environment where, cause like my younger sister was completely sucked into this. Cause when we moved into the ghetto, she was only like five. And if you ever saw the two of us talking, you'd never believe we were related because she, you know, she's of a different culture. It's like she comes from a different country. You know, it's like trying to talk to somebody from the very deep south. You're talking to a person of a completely different world, you know, but that world venerates crime, um, looks down on doing well in school, looks down on getting a job, you know. And in that scenario, you're supposed to try to pass classes You know, and I remember kids hiding their report cards because they didn't want anybody to know they had done well, because they didn't want to get Mm -hmm. picked on or beat up. You know, Mm -hmm. like, how do we solve that problem? Well, I don't think you could just throw money at it. And I don't think that showing up to tell everybody there that the real problem is the white oppressor who is not even there. You know, I mean, like, Mm -hmm. there's such a small percentage of us were white there. You know, there's a moment in Lean on Me where he says, I need all my white students to stand up. You know, because he's pointing out these people have the same problems you do, you know, and, you know, I've used that clip from time to time, but people can't wrap their head around it. They're so caught up in this idea. No, 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 no. We jealously guard that it's our race that is the most oppressed. Mm -hmm. You know, our race is the one that has the most problems. And I remember this when I was at Occupy because these politics destroyed Occupy Detroit and we didn't really have them in Occupy Flint. I was at two different camps, you know. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening is people start fighting over which one of them is the more oppressed because it becomes a way to basically become popular, you know, and I'm in popularity. Mm-hmm. I mean, like your, your place in the social hierarchy, you know, um, you mm-hmm. know, but anyway, you know, I, so, I, I
1: was at Zuccotti park, you know, for, for a while there, you know, I, I, I didn't sleep there overnight or anything, but I was really curious about what, what was the dynamic. And I, you know, I it, it, just anecdotally, I saw very much the same thing happen.
0: Right. And happen that's there. the funny thing is, is when it started, it was so beautiful. Like, everybody it was so colorblind gender neutral it didn't matter where you were it didn't matter where you were from and i'd be standing shoulder to shoulder with people that i'd never met who were from completely different parts of the you know of the culture but we were all unified in one purpose mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden we're not now it's well you know the the blm part of the group which blm didn't exist but basically the people who were focused on black rights we want this issue and then the the gay people show up and they want this issue and, and then you know, and then it's uh, then it came down to like I remember at one point they didn't want to let white males talk a certain period of time. You know, and mm-hmm. you know that brings us back to like the the concept that only certain people can experience this, and if you're not in the oppressor class, then you shouldn't be allowed to talk on it. I'm you know I'm sorry if you are in the oppressor class. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and of course, unless you're you know infected by the parasitic condition of whiteness and happen to be black, you know, then you're also not allowed to talk about it. You know, even if you did experience those things, even if you, you know, like one of my friends is a guy named Rob, who we became friends because we were we were on the same Facebook group arguing about something like this. And I think it was like three different white people were like, you're not allowed to talk about this, you know, because you're white. And then he just said, you know what? No, because <laughs> he's a black guy. He's like, no, you're not allowed to talk about this. <laughs> he is. I gave him permission. And the funny thing is, is that even though it sounded silly, they obeyed. Like oh, you yeah, just, yeah. just stop talking because a black person told them to stop talking, you know? And yeah. it, it, the, the problem is this, is that if we start, you know, basically weighing whether or not something is valid based on the color of the skin of the person, based on whether or not they're straight or not based on whether or not they're, you know, the, the whole long list of oppressed groups, you know, then that ends up becoming more important than the actual validity of the argument, which is what check your privilege. was all about, it was like, you know, again, we, if we use the analogy of a card game, I'm losing so I just throw out the check your privilege card and now I'm suddenly winning even if everything I just said was absolute nonsense. You know, and that's not good for education either. You know, yeah. so I wanted to kind of direct things back a little bit more to kind of get um an image for my audience about what life was like at the school. I don't think we spent enough time at that. But like, you know, so, you know, obviously you have students that are scared to talk to you. You have, you know, teachers and faculty that are essentially shunning you. You know, um, and I guess if you could just share some more experiences of of how that was. And I mean, I you know, then I, I think it'd be valuable to people to understand the gravity of what we're discussing, that if this gets out of control, this is what you're looking at.
1: Yeah, um, I I had you know the years for, for the few years leading up to this, I had a sense of whether, you know, other faculty were also troubled by this i didn't really have a good sense of what the student body was feeling whether you know the extent to which students felt silenced or that they couldn't voice alternative opinions to things but you know since the article came out and you know i went public i did receive a substantial number of emails from students and alumni students that i taught in previous years i've been there you know this was my ninth year at the school you know um overwhelmingly proportionally supportive of me doing what I did and saying that they experienced um, very similar things and, and that I was not wrong as to what I, you know, what I was seeing from the students just watching body language and watching their behavior and some of these meetings and workshops and so on. Uh, and, you know, that felt, I, I felt, reinforced and validated by that. I think that that was really, um, you know, I kind of felt that my instincts were correct. And then there was subsequently a study that was done by the school, uh, supposedly anonymous, of uh, the student body and the teachers included in the survey, um, out of a school community of about 400, 400 people or so, 420 people, the response rate was only 25%. I found out later from the students that a lot of didn't participate because you had to sign in with your school email to participate, but even given that small response rate, you know, you can see it online. It's published online under the Grace Gazette. It's the name of the the school paper. And I I actually do commend them for publishing the the results because it clearly indicates that there's a problem. Uh, So if you, you know, just going through some of the top line results on the survey, you know, do you feel comfortable expressing an uncommon opinion at our school? It was, you know, 43% said yes, you know, and so it's, the student body is extremely divided, and there are a lot of qualitative responses as well, people, people writing in anonymously um, about, you know, how they felt about, were they able to voice conservative opinions or challenge some of the rhetoric that was being pushed on them, and um it, it it was a i think a clear validation of of my article and that it definitely showed that there was there is a problem at the school um so um you know that's something that i found really interesting and uh you know personally going going to work every day i mean i i worked we we were high we were teaching hybrid this past year and so i was going in uh like with all most of my colleagues were going in every single day, teaching to, on zoom and to a room of students at the same time. Uh, and it's, it, it was an onerous technical hurdle to, to, to make it work and to set it up, break down when we have no passing time between classes and so on. So it's, it was, it was difficult to do. It's was just difficult work, challenging work, teaching in that environment and with those, those limitations. And, you know, just, going about my day after all these things that happened and I was being shunned was, it was, it was hard. It was a, it was a grind and it felt really alienating and and disturbing. Um, But I did feel like since the moment when I spoke out in February, I did feel like I was right with God. I don't know how else to put it, but I felt like I had done the right thing for speaking up. And, um, and it was like, there was a kind of inner, Piece to to my experience, whereas for the all of these years previously, I had just been grumbling into my beard and 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 complaining and and griping silently. Um, it just felt like a weight had been lifted. So it was simultaneously a kind of social stigma, but a kind of inner feeling of well-being. I would say,
0: and I could I could see where it would, and I know that you know for me, my particular scenario is that from a very young age, for whatever reason, I perceived social interactions in a way that was, I guess, more sociological, like I could watch groups of people interact and kind of get a sense of what was going on, you know, Mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't necessarily what everybody thinks about. And what I kind of experienced, like, I remember once I was talking to a counselor because they thought I was depressed or something. and And they said, what's bothering you? And I gave them this in-depth analysis of the hierarchical structure of (laughs) of my middle school Mm -hmm. and how certain kids, this group was popular and this group is not. And then they could, and then the guy said, what, you know, where did you study sociology? And I said, what's sociology? Like I didn't even Mm -hmm. know there was a separate science. Um, anyway, (laughs) I don't know if like this puts me on the Asperger's spectrum or something, but I, the other element of it is that I don't really have the same levels of social anxiety. Um, what bothers me more is when something wrong is going on, that drives me nuts. Like it Mm -hmm. it literally, like I am more bothered by that. But what I kind of noticed was that there are layers to these things. And when you were talking about the support you got, I was actually just talking to Tara Reed about this when I interviewed her the other night, was that, so you, you, first you run into the people who social pressures, maybe they're not, maybe they're not bright enough to be aware of them. um, And they just go along with whatever the group says. Or they are aware of them, but they don't necessarily have the ability to, you know, to fight. Like, I guess I'll just say the spine, you know, to be willing to say anything, you know. Um, So there's that layer. Then the next layer is the group of people who maybe they'll send you a private message on Facebook, you know, telling you that they agree with you, but they're not going to say anything, you know, Um, and they don't want you to say anything. Um, and then the next layer are the group of people who are also extremely aware of it, and the reason they don't like you is because they're using it to control other people and you present a threat to them mm, because yeah not, that's interesting because you're not under your you're not under their spell and in particular, you know, then they wonder, well, is he trying to take control? you know, mm-hmm. and I would say that, um you know, like because I've met a lot of people over my life that, you know, different injustices would happen. And, you know, they're completely aware of it. They don't agree with it. They definitely don't support that this thing happened, you know, but they can't get involved because they're worried about how it's going to impact them. The problem is, is that if you get enough of those people together, then a whole lot of bad things can happen. It also creates a situation where inaction, like I remember once I was running for president of a nonprofit organization. And as you can imagine, being an outspoken person, I was somewhat controversial. The thing is, is that the things I was outspoken about We're not unpopular, necessarily. They were just things that were awkward and people didn't talk about it. And one of the pitches Mm -hmm. I pointed out because they're like, well, I want to vote for you, but you'll never win. And I'm like, well, it's interesting you say that because 70 people just told me that. You know, I'm like, there's actually Mm -hmm. a lot more of you than you think. And the reason, the only reason that somebody pushing what I'm pushing isn't winning is because you all believe that. You know, Mm -hmm. and I'd say that goes on in just about everything. But, you know, and that's one of the reasons why my heart was kind of warmed that now grassroots groups are coming together. Um, You know, like that was actually revealed to me on the Tim Pool podcast I was just talking about earlier, you know, that they are trying to come together to help parents organize to stop this sort of thing before it gets in, you know, before it gets in. You know, Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons we talked about the fact how gradual it is, you know. Um, And I think that we're probably fortunate in my community that we should be able to stop it. And I've already spoken to. Some of the people who would have to vote on this stuff have already said, no, this isn't going to pass. But you have to be vigilant because one of the things about it is that they they take over these offices that nobody even knows about. The kind of stuff that's on your ballot that you go, oh, okay, I guess I'll vote R because I'm a Republican. Mm -hmm. You may not know anything about that person's job. You know, like does anybody know what a county commissioner is? You know, like Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't. You know, um, so that's an example, you know, and in fact, in local politics, when I ran for Congress, one of the things I learned was how many people don't even know who their Congressman is, you know, Mm -hmm. so they infiltrate on these lower level, you know, grassroots level things. And the, the objective there is that if you take over school board, you think, well, that's not a big deal. Then you think, no, now I've taken over the school boards in say 60% of the country, You know, and then that becomes 70 and then 80. And then before you know it, because none of you paid any attention to these lower level elections. Now these people are saying policy on a grand scale. And I think that that's kind of evidenced by this recent, you know, adoption of this stuff by the largest teachers union. You know, um, and I've encountered different conversations. I actually did a brief video of a Twitter conversation where all these teachers we're coming together saying, you know, you can't stop me from teaching this, I'm just going to teach it anyway. And if you fire me, I'll use my white privilege to just go get another teaching job. You know, like, and then yeah. like, this guy said <laughs> that. And then like, I swear, I was scrolling down for like an hour. Of different mm-hmm. teachers going, yeah, me too. Oh yeah, I've already done it. You know, and then they're like exchanging strategies, like you know how easy it is to slip it into math. You know, to just tell them statistics for things that are you know you know relevant to this stuff. You know, it's like, oh my god. Oh yeah.
1: The, so yeah. So this is this is something I've seen in the in the response to the parent pushback and the, the kind of you know, the the huge domination of of the news cycle by this by this issue lately is that there's a doubling down, a tripling down. I've been to some seminars, uh, virtual seminars with, uh, DEI uh, consultancies that are offering and they're giving explicit tactics and strategies for how to deal with, uh, parents who are being more vocal about this. And, and, uh, it is a, it is a full on doubling down. I mean, in one of the seminars, the, the head of the organization, um, a fascinating guy, actually, uh, uh, Dr. Rodney Glasgow. He runs a, an outfit called the Glasgow Group, which is a very influential DEI consultancy in New York, LA, and Chicago for private schools. Um, you know, he made an explicit connection between parents who are voicing displeasure with critical race theory in in the schools and the January 6th rioters at the Capitol, and connecting that to slave owners. So. You know, you they are they are just lumping in this giant bucket. If you know, being very explicit with excellent, really, really, uh, I do. I tip my cap to that, to the sophistry, but storytelling in framing um, parents as you know, KKK members, essentially, uh, and it's it is, you know, it's a it's a drastic framing. But it's like I, how many I,
0: different degrees of Kevin Bacon are you? I don't know <laughs> if you remember that joke. Yeah, really yeah. <laughs> like how how many different things do I have to link together to get back to Kevin Bacon?
1: Right, right. Well, it's 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 done subtly. Right. He, he starts. It, it's a keynote speech. If if anyone wants to Google it, it's fascinating. It's it's on the Dalton School. The Dalton School is a private school, very prestigious in New York, and they have a, a conference every year on on diversity issues and and this fellow gave the keynote speech and I urge everyone to watch it, at least watch the last eight minutes of it. It's, it's on the, you can find it uh, on Google um, because it really gives, I, I, I want, I want parents and anyone who's standing up for, you know, uh, against this to, to understand what you're up against in that you really are dealing with activists, ideologues who are, want, who, who are seeking to, to mint new you know, child soldiers, essentially, for, this, for these causes. And they're not going to be dissuaded or put off by um, statutes at the state level or even the local level. Because in the classroom, the teacher has tremendous power uh, to, to teach what they want. Um, and to, to get people out of these positions is what it's going to take. You're going to have to actually mobilize uh, people to go into education programs and become teachers with different ideas. And that's why I think that th- this is going to take decades to, right. you know, and that what we may be seeing now, I hope, is the sort of high water mark.
0: Uh, in a, in that's a, one in of the, the things that Mary said you know? was that it takes almost an equal amount of time to undo what they've done, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. But, you know, yeah. I agree, not just about becoming teachers, but also like, It puts situations like, you know, because I I just said this on our forum for my community recently was like, it's not going to be enough to just stop this at the curriculum level. We're going to have to start paying attention to new teachers who have been hired because like it was one of the things that was unique about your school. You pointed out was because it was a new school. It was full of like very young, fresh out of the college brainwashing system teachers. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll be harder where I live because a lot of these teachers have been doing this for a really long time. You know, like they haven't been to college in double digits of years. You know, they haven't been taught this stuff, you know, or rather, I guess, indoctrinated into it. But they will trickle their way in, and I guess it kind of falls to. I mean, it's been a while since I looked at this. It falls to school principals in that end. You know, we're going to have to be held accountable Mm. to don't hire people like this, and if they do something like this. But that's the funny thing is, is, like my kids are old enough now that I'm not worried. You know, and they're also kind of politically minded. They listen to my podcasts. They. You know, they, they listen to stuff that I do on YouTube. That's much more free thinking. I'm not worried about them getting brainwashed by it. I'm worried about, you know, they're going to tell my son, for example, something that is ridiculous and he's going to tell them that. And then he's going to get disciplined for it. You know, yeah. that's why when you describe that scenario with your kid, I'm like, oh man, I'm like, hmm. you know, if my kids are in that scenario, it would be so bad. You know, um, but it's, it, it was really chilling reading your article at, at just the, the environment that they had created. And that's why I, I had to spit out, don't forget, this is to just stop people from being oppressive. You know, we need to have this, you know, KGB society running everything. And I don't even mean KGB in the, the sense of the communist takeover. I just mean the idea of, you know, the way Russians were terrified that the KGB might overhear anything that they say at any mm-hmm. given time, you know, um, and ironically, also to protect us from fascism, despite the fact that one of the cornerstones of fascism is censorship. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the things I pointed out on a, I was on a more conservative podcast um, and I went, why is it that it's the, you know, the anti-fascists that keep pushing for censorship? (laughs) You know, like (laughs) help me with that one, you know, but it's, I guess, um, you know, it's, I hope that, you know, for you, I mean, obviously, I believe you said, one of the other interviews I listened to that they just kind of decided they just weren't going to renew your contract, you know, mm-hmm. so there's going to be penalties for you, but it almost seems like another thing that kind of occurred to me is now that everybody's developing these charter schools, that it may come particularly to the conservative minded types. They may need to just find people who, even if they're not, you know, outright, totally conservative, just people they know that are against this and just start building their own institutions. You know, yeah, I, that. I,
1: that's, I think that is, um, I mean, every guy, it seems like every parent I talk to is really hungry for alternative institutions and schools that can, can offer, um, you know, just a classical education, classical liberal education and a sense of community, but, but without, without all this nonsense, I think, you know, there's a, there's such a hunger for it. Um, certainly at, at, you know, in, in large cities among, um, you know, independent school culture. Uh, I, I just think the first person that could get the money together and open a whole network of schools around those ideas is going to, it's going to have people lining up around the block.
0: Uh, Especially with so. this new proliferation of online schools. I mean, mind you, they mm-hmm. have their own problems and I encountered that because we did online this year, you know, where I kind of had to make sure that I was vigilant myself, <laughs> you know, to yeah. make sure that everything's getting done and all that, you know, but You know, it would seem that if it comes down to it, because a lot of people are talking about homeschooling, you know, and not everybody's in a position to do that. Like, I mean, if I wasn't, it helps that through most of this time I've been home because I've been injured. So I've been able to work, you know, but like if I wasn't, I don't, you know, it's like, man, that's, you know, it's tough to do homeschooling. I don't think people realize just that it's not as easy as they think, but, but it may literally just come down to basically creating the, you know, the free market, so to speak. You Mm -hmm. know, I, as a leftist saying those words, I'll probably have to go take a shower after the broadcast. <laughs> but my point is, is that to use <laughs> the market of like, okay, well fine, you do that. We're not doing that. You know, and it doesn't even have to be that we're going to have a Fox news, you know, make America great again school. It means to me need to have a school where this isn't like a requirement, you know, for you to adhere to our principles or ideologies, meaning, you know, to be mm-hmm. able to pass our damn grades, you know, and especially yeah. since the kids that are coming out of this stuff, you know, they're, um, not just on the level of like, I guess the kids who are getting to college, like they have more um, social anxiety. They have more psychological problems. They have more, you know, like they're getting to colleges and they have no resilience and they, you know, that's a separate topic. But I think it kind of rings back to the way that we've been changing the way we raise our kids, you know. So when they're in that vulnerable state, I think that makes them even more susceptible to, Oh well, I know why you know you have all this anxiety. It's because of all this racism, or it's because of all this sexism. It's because of mm-hmm. you know you it, because you're trans, or it's because you're this or you're that. You just didn't know it, you know. Rather than actually just giving them the ability to think, you know, and and cope, you know, and be able to handle adversity, yeah, you know, um, and be able to handle, you know, that's another thing I think I've been telling you know my conservative listeners. I'm like, look, you're not going to agree with everything that's about to be said because I'm bringing on somebody leftist, but I'd like you to challenge yourself to listen to this broadcast and think about the things I'm saying that you do agree with and things about the things that my guests are saying that you do agree with, you know, because it's healthy for you to do that. And I do the same thing. I listen to stuff that I don't quite agree with, you know yeah. um, you know, and people don't do that. Like I, you bring up Jordan Peterson. I can't even use a Jordan Peterson link to talk to somebody on the left. Cause they've all convinced themselves that he's this hard, right. right, You know, like, I'm like, guys, right. I don't agree with everything he says either, but that's all nonsense. That's not true you know, you know, um, so, you know, but regardless, you know, I want to thank you for coming on and discussing your story with me. I know you said you took some notes about things you wanted to bring up that maybe you didn't get a chance to talk about before. Do you, do you want to go over that now? Um,
1: yeah, there's one, one thing I wanted to highlight again for the, for parents that are, that are interested in, in, uh, in keeping, you know, or, or, or creating or or resuscitating a, a, school boards or public school system is that they um keep an eye out for the younger grades because the way that the these consultancies are structuring their curricula for the kindergarten through sixth grade in particular is this is a moral education that they're pushing they're pushing an alternative moral education and that is that requires a, a child to have a different understanding of their identity so if you if you look at for example there's a there's a consultancy in New York called Pollyanna and they have a, a very highly regarded k through eight curriculum um and it's 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 called uh the racial literacy curriculum and essentially what it is is it's it's it starts out with a recognition in kindergarten of the importance of colors in fact they have eight they have eight lessons specifically about just recognizing color. And then they they will gradually take it into the realm of identity. And so you know, they'll do these things called identity wheels where you start out describing or the student will start out describing things about themselves, like, oh, I like ice cream, or you know, my favorite color is orange, or you know, I I like horses or whatever. And then they will gradually seduce, and I use that word specifically on purpose, they will seduce them into identifying. With their socially imposed identity, whether that's racial, racialized, um, uh, you know, or ethnic, your ethnic identity. And then that gradually takes precedence over their personal identity, their dreams, aspirations, goals, character, all the things that make you a, a moral agent in society gets replaced with the solidarity for your group identity. And then once that Is instantiated once that child has internalized their social, socially imposed identity as, as important, as more important than their personal identity. They can layer sort of like the, think of it like an operating system. They've installed the operating system and then subsequent grades, they can, they can layer all of the history and, and social studies, you know, and all of the, the teaching of, of reality around that identity so that that instantiates you as a member of a, you know, a marginalized group or an oppressor group or privileged group or what have you, because they've already made that transition into being, uh, having a solidarity with a particular group, whether that's, you know, as a white person where they can, they can leverage your guilt around your privilege to get you to accept certain stereotypes about yourself, or as an oppressed group as leveraged, you know, that group identity to, accept a whole set of other criteria. So I, I find that to be really the most disturbing thing because they understand that children see the world in moral primary colors. And if they can set that palette early, um, instantiate that in their minds, it's it's an incredibly potent and, and debilitating thing that's going on right now. And so pay attention to the younger grades first because, you know, as they as as everyone knows you know, it's the moral education that's that's the most powerful at those ages. So well,
0: that's, especially that's, when it comes to them inserting themselves, like I said about that book earlier, as yes, well, you yeah. can't trust your parents. you got to trust us.
1: Right, right. So, so, you know, education, the word education has the same root as seduction. They both mean to lead. One means to lead forth and, and one means to lead astray. And so what we're seeing now is we're seeing a kind of seducation as opposed to education. And, and it's, it's, you know, frightening to witness. Um, and the more I find out about it, the more, um, the more disturbing it is. And so I'm, I'm working right now on a book about DEI consultancies and the sort of woke industrial complex. That's, that's just, as you mentioned, you know, a huge industry right now. And, uh, and I really want to delve into the psychology, the psychological effects of the pedagogy, um, that's being pushed right now. And, uh, and, uh, kind of related to my own experiences. So hopefully that book will be out, um, you know, by the end of the year.
0: Oh, and when you're done with that, you know, like, please get in contact with me. Cause I'd love to have you come on and talk about it. I just, sure. and it, a thought just kind of occurred to me is that maybe we should fight fire with fire a little bit. And, you know, maybe you should look into, you know, giving speeches to school boards on behalf of people since they're going to bring in speakers to push their mm-hmm. view, you know, to try to say this is what happened in my school you know, and this yeah. is how it, how bad it gets. And, you know, I had kids that had anxiety to even be able to question any element of what's going on around them. You know, um, that kind of, that, that story can be told. We can use the same, you know, avenues that they will. And if the, if the you know, the only question, I guess, is that, you know, yeah, I don't think you're going to get 20,000 bucks for it. And you may even just have to do it during public comment, because in some cases, these places are not going to want to let you talk. Like I've seen, we're, we're pretty lucky where we are. I've seen some school board meetings where there's this guy who keeps yelling at people authoritatively, you're done. You know, like <laughs> he sounds like an abusive dad talking to these parents, you know, and some of them are not even, they're not yelling. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not cussing. You know, th- some of them are just giving statistics. Like, we're not talking about that. You know, we're not mm-hmm. going to bring this up. You know, we've done that. We, you're done. You're done. And I'm like, oh yeah. my yeah. goodness. I want to get up from my chair you know, and and show him how done he is and telling me he's done. <laughs> you know, I guess, you know, and it just it's there. It's bad. It's 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 a bullying scenario. And, you know, I think that's part of the point that discourages people. Like I've had a bunch of people private message me <clears throat> and say, will you please come to this meeting? And because I'm in a wheelchair, it's tough but they know that if I go to that meeting and they try that crap with me, that they're going to get it thrown right back at them. So it's mm-hmm. going to take personalities to step up and do that sort of thing, you know? And yeah. so, I mean, look into that too. And I mean, maybe there's an yeah. opportunity for you there. I mean, as much as I don't, you know, I hate making anything for profit, which is the reason I don't monetize my show anymore, you know, um, because it changes your, your element, but at least you could be in a scenario where this could help you. I mean, the funny thing about Brett Weinstein and Jordan Peterson is that both of them were just obscure professors at some college somewhere until this nonsense happened and now they're it's like that part of Star Wars where Obi-Wan tells Darth Vader you can strike me down but I'll become more powerful than you could possibly imagine you know mm-hmm. because now Jordan Peterson's not just at some college in Ontario saying that stuff and now Brett Weinstein's not just at Evergreen saying that stuff they both have enormous YouTube channels and they have an audience you know um yeah and so I, what
1: I what I really want to do is um, I want to empower parents and and students you know most of all to to give them like a tools for how to how to challenge some of these ideas in in the classroom without and, and outside the classroom without sacrificing um, you know uh, would be smart about it essentially you know without without losing your cool staying calm and collected and i think you know it, the more students that feel you know empowered to step up uh, and, and voice their concerns with this um i think the better it will be and the healthier it will be for them and the school culture because parents yes i mean parents are a huge huge force but we want to raise students that have a sense of autonomy and a sense of confidence about their own ideas and i think that's that's something i'd really like to to help with too
0: Right. And I think it's for me, it was just doing what my mom did. I mean, my mom was very big on teaching independent critical thinking. You know, for example, I was allowed to question her. I had to be respectful Mm -hmm. and it had to be the right circumstance. You know, this goes back to, you know, how to raise your kids. But like, I exposed them to stuff myself. And rather than trying to tell them, you know, how they should react to the things that I was showing them, I'd ask them questions. And Mm -hmm. generally, if you show them the truth, they put it together. You know, and as a result, now the funny thing is, my kids are, way more skeptical even than i am you know like mm-hmm. they they examine everything and i mm-hmm. think that's what i call as is self-defense for the brain you know like i yeah. expose them to some like there's a film called War, for example uh, was made by a friend of mine named scott noble where he explains how propaganda works how you know like how public relations work and how advertising works and now you know like there are some kids who see a commercial and then they're going to be in their you know the parents room nagging them to get something whereas my kids are going to go yeah i know what that was about they're trying to get me to buy something
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: and it's the same thing when it comes to social concepts or you know like i was told actually of a situation where my son had gotten in an argument with another student about the issue of police brutality and he got sent to the principal's office and the principal's like well i'm sorry to tell you this but he's right meaning my son was right you know go, go back to class you know um But in order to develop those kinds of skills, to be able to confront those things, you know, or if you don't want your kid to be getting in trouble all the time, you can at least teach them, look, you're going to hear a lot of crap. You know, you're going to, it's not going to be true. Just do what you got to do to get out of there and get your piece of paper. You know, even that's a better solution than just not talking to your kids about this at all. Because if you don't, somebody else will be very happy to slide in there and do it for you. You know, it's like the don't, you know, don't forget to talk to your kids about drugs or whatever you know, it's the same concept, you know, and I think that, you know, when it comes to stuff like this, you know, I don't think that, I think we've just been like sleeping on it, you know, because we could trust it for so long. Yeah. Uh, I think it's time that people are going to have to wake up because, you know, if this has been going on since 2015, you know, and it's, it's just going to get worse, you know, and it, it it ties into so many other things, you know, unless we take a stand. And that was one of the cool things about that Tim Pool conversation was that she was telling a bunch of victory stories, you know, You can take over your school board. You know, like Mm -hmm. these are elected positions for a reason. You know, it's like, I tell black lives matter people. I'm like, if you don't like what's going on with your cops, how many of you voted in your sheriff election? And most of them don't even think about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is an elected position for a reason. You know, why don't you put pressure on your mayor to appoint a police chief who's actually friendly to, you know, overcoming, you know, and reforming the police instead of burning down cities. <laughs> Which one of these things do you think is going to be more and the funny thing is is when I bring that up in those circles they get quiet and then they don't want to talk about it. You know, I'm like this yeah. is the concept that was set out in front of you, you know, take control of your school board. Don't just get up and yell. You know, you may even have to run for the position. It's not like being in the school board is like becoming a senator. You know, yeah, you'll have to go to some meetings, but it's not going to you know, you know it's not going to end your life. But pay attention to those elections. Don't just let, you know, don't just check marks. You know, make sure that you know who these people are because That's really how all this got to happen is, again, it's like I said earlier, and I don't want to belabor it or beat it to death. But this happened because these are all positions that nobody paid any attention to. And now we're getting the the consequences. Now, we've been talking for a while. I just I wanted to make one more point and get your view on it. But I've been studying a lot about China and how Chairman Mao reaffirmed his power through the Cultural Revolution. And for people who don't know about this, and this is, again, something that's hard to talk about because now people are conditioned to roll their eyes if you bring up anything from Soviet Russia or from China. But the Maoist Cultural Revolution was literally Mao appealed to the students, talked to teachers to get the students to behave this way, set the students against their parents. So, like, there's literally a scenario where where these kids are reporting their parents to the state, You know, and during the Cultural Revolution, a lot of people died, you know, Um, and it was through the education system that this happened. And it was the college aged kids who primarily were the drivers. And they had this thing they called their little red book, you know, that had all of Maoist, all the Maoist doctrine in it, you know. And a funny thing is, is Patrice Cullors, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, said, was talking about someone else's socialist book and said, it's like Mao's little red book, you know, Mm -hmm. like she was all glowing about it. Yeah. You know like is this is this is a good thing to you like the funny thing is is that even like sensible socialist friends of mine are like, "What you know, like <laughs> yeah. they don't think he's a good guy, they didn't think Stalin was a good guy but but no, I mean I mean, do you see any parallels to the cultural revolution? I mean, we've had Chinese citizens literally just come out and say that that's what it looks like, but that' doesn't oh yeah it. i mean i
1: I there are parents explicitly who have been in the cultural revolution have reached out to me and said, you know this I will not put up with this crap because, you know, I lived on one egg a day. <laughs> so, you right. not you can't tell me, you know, I, I watched this happen to my village as a girl or as, you know, a young child. This happened. And so they they're like the canary in the coal mine they see, you know, they've been through this same thing with immigrants from Venezuela or Cuba, Nicaragua. I mean, this is this similar things played out where the capture of institutions with a particular ideology um, and the kind of disasters that result from that. Um,
0: and that's, I, I think, there's no secret
1: implore. to a lot of immigrants, basically. Right.
0: I who, who and I would are. implore people to study more on it. There's documentaries on it. It's just the kind of stuff. Everybody thought we just defeated this problem. They thought when the Berlin Wall came down that this was all over. And the funny thing is, is I actually think that some of it, like we're all looking for a puppet master. I, I think that some of what Yuri was talking about may have already been set in motion by KGB officers who are not even alive anymore. Mm-hmm. Like we could be looking at like this is like the, you throw a rock in the pond and the ripples are going out. This could be ripples from during the Cold War, you know. Um, that, so in other words, there may not even be anybody at, you know, at, the, at the reins when it comes to some of it. But the Chinese Cultural Revolution, coupled with the fact that we're having all these problems with China and international politics, kind of slides into place for me. You know, mm-hmm. um, because one of the things that's unique about the United States is that our, our geolocation, our military it would make it very difficult to just outright invade this country, you know, and as they, you know, as they pointed out, you know, talking about the Soviet bloc countries, you know, the best way to deal with it was just to get everybody on your side. And then they think you're showing up to be there, you know, to be their saviors instead of having to fight them, mm-hmm. you know, um, so this has been a fantastic conversation, you know, please stay in touch. Um, and again, you know, when your book comes out, let us know. And, and I seriously do hope that you consider, you know, um, you know, looking for these people who need this, like maybe put together Mm -hmm. video presentations of your own, you know, stuff like that to get it out there. Because the thing is, is that they actually, oh, I forgot about this one kind of important thing is that I've noticed that the strategy now is to say, we're not teaching critical race theory. And the reason that they're saying that is because they can instead say, well, no, we're teaching anti-racism, you know, right. and uh, Ibram X. Kenny defends himself by saying, well, I'm not versed in critical race theory. I teach anti-racism, you know, racism, even though he's saying a lot of the same things. Did you did you encounter any difference between those two things? Like when you were dealing with it, infiltrating your school?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean. Yeah, there are so, there are differences between anti-racism and what's called critical race theory, but they you know they they all emerge from the same general I guess they're offshoots, right? So so kind of I you know being very specific how this is not that and you know what we're teaching isn't really critical race theory because that's a something that's taught in law schools or this that whole rhetorical practice is a kind of a smoke screen. So what I and, and it's a distraction, I think you know the the, our, the the way that discourse has played out in the past month or so has been um, a lot of confusion and a lot of smoke being created. And what we sh- what I think is most effective to focus on is the is the pedagogical practices. Make people who are you know arguing about the meaning of CRT make them defend. You know is it is it do you support asking eight year olds to interrogate their whiteness? Do you feel like that is a you know I want to know on record. Does Joy Reid support eight-year-olds interrogating and deconstructing their whiteness? Yes or no? If she says yes, well, okay, that's great. I'm perfectly happy that you've you've made that clear. If you say no, well, then okay, good, because that's the problem, right? Don't make it so much about the meaning of, of the theory or, or a semantic game. I think it would be a lot more productive to focus on. You know, the dis- divisive practices and also better from a legal standpoint, because those are the things that are in violation of the 14th Amendment and the and the uh, Civil Rights Act and stuff like that.
0: You know, uh, it just occurred to me another example that that reminds me of is they want it to be confusing, you know, and yeah. it comes back to the religious persecution thing I was talking about. I once had a conversation with a Muslim girl and I said, you know, I said because she said, well, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. And then I asked her about what goes on in the Middle East and she made a very valid point. She said that, unfortunately, what you're talking about, meaning like suicide bombers and terrorists, is that in the Middle East, the clerics are usually the only ones who can even read the Quran, mm-hmm. And they'll just tell you whatever they want you to hear. Like, yeah. And so and if you argue with them, then you're looking at being, you know, in a lot of trouble because they they murder people over there for getting right. out of control religiously. So she pointed out just that they make it so that they're the only ones who can interpret these things. So if your local, you know, cleric as a radical, he's telling you what is true and what isn't, and you're not in a position to argue with him, and you can't read the book yourself. And that just kind of fired in my head that memory. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds familiar. You know, so, um, but yeah, I just, I definitely agree with you. We should empower parents on this, and I I hope you continue your work, because maybe you need to look at this as, as opposed to being something that was like, you know, something seriously negative in your life is that maybe it's something that reveals your life's purpose because I think that's what mm-hmm. happened with Brett Weinstein. I think that's what's happened with Jordan Peterson. You know, and the funny thing is, is Brett Weinstein's a leftist, you know, like flat yeah. out, you know, like he's a left guy. He is not some right-leaning guy at all. And they they say that Jordan Peterson is, but he says stuff all the time that's not left, but it's not not overpoweringly right either. Like there was a conversation between him and Joe Rogan and Brett Weinstein where they all kind of agreed you know, you need to have a little help. You can't just let capitalism go crazy. You know, like mm-hmm. there needs to be some kind of safety net system to get people when they fall. You know, like this is even Jordan Peterson saying this, mm-hmm. you know, but at this point, if you deviate, then they throw a label on you. And, and from then on, you're that label, regardless of whether or not it actually suits you or not. So yeah. anyway,
1: yeah. thanks again. I will take that advice. I, you know, I'm, I, I feel like I do feel that way, actually. And, uh, and uh, it's good to hear you say that.
0: Well, yeah, that's uh, well, that's kind of what I decided is that maybe these situations and what I can offer to people as far as just trying to clarify things and especially being able to communicate to both sides was something that I was unique at, but uniquely good at. And then not everybody can do that. But, you know, for you, I just say, hey, you know, I hope that you succeed and don't, you know, don't get discouraged about this. This could literally be something that ends up being a, an extremely powerful positive force in your life, you know, because this is the thing that you're in a unique position because you're a teacher. You know, it's not like you're just some guy who read about it on the Internet. That's what we always get told. Well, you don't even know what critical race theory is. Oh, okay. Well, explain it to me. Well, you're just some guy on the Internet. You know, you need to do the work. I'm like, oh, okay, so explain <laughs> it to me. <laughs> and they, they can't. You know, um, they know you don't know what it is, but but they don't know what it is really yeah. necessarily. You know, so anyway, thanks again, yeah, Paul.
1: Thank you, go ahead, go Neil. Ahead. And uh if, if anyone wants to, you know, I I'm, I'm if anyone wants to email me, I'm at teachingfortruth at gmail.com. Uh or you can find me on Twitter at Paul D Rossi, uh, P-A-U-L-D-R-O-S-S-I. You can DM me if with any questions uh, or or uh, problems you may have, I'd be happy to respond.
0: All right, excellent. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, I typically will have a brief phone call with people after a show, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, no And uh, to all of those of you who are listening, um, you know, I hope you'll consider subscribing to my channels. Uh, again, either if you're right or if you're left, um, it doesn't matter to me. My main focus is not necessarily to push an agenda as far as, you know, my own beliefs and so much as to try to clarify things and bring truth to the circumstances of what's really going on. And if there's something that I'm about to say that is more about my own beliefs, I typically tell people, like if I'm about ready to editorialize or something. You know, um, but what my my objective is, is that I want everybody to start having conversations with people that they won't, don't necessarily agree with, um, because at the end of the day, that is something that that we're losing. And it's creating divisions that I'm afraid are going to it's not just going to be about somebody said something mean to me on the Internet. It's going to be somebody hurt me because of my beliefs. And that's already starting to happen. You know, and, you know, we never did talk about harm. <laughs> What's harm? <laughs> I mean- you said something yeah. that, I, that it was inappropriate, you know, so now it's harm and maybe we'll do right. it another time, but, um, but either way, but you know, so you can do a whole yeah. show just on
1: harm. I seriously <laughs> have a lot to say about that one.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, everybody for tuning in. And um, I hope to see you at the next episode of V radio. Okay. Can